A diner in Long Island has a terrifying past. And then we travel to Estonia to meet a journalist who took a trip on a spaceship. Everything was going great until the corkscrew entered his head. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. We got a lot of stuff to cover. So we're going to slide right into this one. First off, let's toss the keys to all of our vehicles into the capable hands of our newest Patreon supporter, Evan Young. Evan, everyone give a round of applause to Evan. You don't have to. I mean, it would just be polite. He's going to be our captain this episode. If you can't support the Patreon, totally understand. That's fine, too. Just help spread the word about the show. Talk about it online to your friends. That also really, really helps out a lot. Also, I have sent out all of the Patreon supporter stickers. I still have some. But if you have sent me your address officially today, some of you guys have been waiting a while. I apologize for that. But they have all. if you have sent me your address, yours is in the mail today. Sorry I fell behind on that. But... It's all, it's all out there, so it's on the way, so you can keep checking your mailbox, <laughs> sorry, because some of you guys have been checking your mailbox quite a lot. Evan, let's go ahead and toss you the keys to the Jason Jalopy. We're going to take a long car ride. We are leaving behind Oregon. We're headed out to New York. Ding, ling, ding, ling. That's the door as we're opening to go into the diner. Specifically, we're going to the Seacrest Diner. Now, this is a diner in Long Island. We're going to walk, we're going to get our menus, we're going to sit down. And we're going to start off with a bit of lightheartedness because this segment gets pretty rough really, really fast. But I think it's an interesting segment. But first off, let's do one of my favorite things. I love reading. I love reading reviews. I love reading bad reviews online. So we're sitting down at the Seacrest and we're looking through the menu. Go ahead. Order whatever you want. Evan's paying for it. Evan's paying for it with the Patreon donation. Go ahead. Order everything. But as you're eating your... I don't order anything. As you're eating your food, I'm going to read you a couple of these reviews here real quick. These are real reviews I found on their Yelp page or, or whatever review site it was. Went to have coffee and dessert with family. And everything we ordered was old. <laughs> and everything we ordered was old mold growing on rice pudding. Carrot cake dry and stale. Even chocolate ice cream didn't taste right. Never going back again. If I sat down, if we're having dinner or something like that, and I see that there's mold growing on the rice pudding, <laughs> I'm not going to go, hmm, that's disgusting. I wonder how this carrot cake tastes. Oh, oh, this is so gross. Luckily, I have this bowl of ice cream. This bowl of ice cream must be delicious. Like, the mold on the rice pudding, right? You just quit eating. You just quit eating at that point. We gotta get the laughs in now, because this next segment's rough. I'm sorry you're on this episode, Evan. Here we go, last review. Old, filthy, wobbly chairs. Dirty rug being swept as we ate. (laughs) So you're like taking a piece of fried chicken. Dust is all flying in your mouth. Dirty rug being swept as we ate. Disgusting bathroom. Menus were even greasy dirty. The service, just as bad. Okay, so all of that stuff's going on, right? You go, <laughs> you go and the chairs are wobbly. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That would actually be kind of fun. Uh, old, filthy, wobbly chairs. The dirty rug is being... At least they're sweeping it. 
really, but dirty rug being swept as we ate. Disgusting bathroom. Again, they're like, what? This chair is horrible, and this place is disgusting. I know the one clean place in this restaurant. I will go into the lavatory. Of course it's going to be disgusting. The service was bad, and then we get to this is the best part. This is the best part. Waitress has pus on her face. Waitress had pus on her face. They actually all did. So basically, every every member of the service staff had pus on their face. Like they just hatched from some sort of cocoon in the back. And then they still ate the food. So after all of that stuff, the wobbly chairs, the, the stuff getting swept on you, people with pus all over their face. Then we have a review of the actual food. Burnt hash browns, overdone eggs, French toast was really just toast fried. I don't know what that means. We left feeling grossed out and disgusted. And the prices were not worth the meal. Two exclamation points. So after all that, you're like, man, you know what? Looking back on it, I really got overcharged for my French toast covered in pus. I shouldn't have paid that much. I'm going to go review Yelp as I slowly transform into a cocoon. Okay, this next segment is not funny at all. So we want, those are real reviews. And but and the Seacrest is a real restaurant, but let's we're, it's going to get dark here. So I really kind of want this whole episode is a little dis- dark. But anyways, there we go. The joy has now left my body. It's just floated away. Evan, we're going to snap our fingers. We're going to go back to the 1980s to kind of get a sense of context for the story. I was reading this article recently. American criminologist Marcus Felsen. He's recently, he'd come up with this theory a long time ago, but he says he can really look at it because of the COVID lockdowns. He goes, when we look at crime, we always go income disparity, where people are at, you know, opportunities, broken window theory, all this stuff. He goes, I've always had a theory about really what causes crime at a root level. And he goes, I've really been able to see how it works because for the first time really ever, we've had mass amounts of people locked down. He goes, really, it comes down to three things. A capable offender, a suitable target, and the absence of an appropriate guardian. So, in other words, a specific deterrent. Could be a video camera can be the guardian. It could be a police officer. It could be a neighborhood watch. But think about if if you think the video camera doesn't work, or if you think even if the video camera does work, or if someone watches you do it, you won't get in trouble for it, petty vandalism, skateboarding, things like that, then you do it. A capable offender, a suitable target, absence of a guardian. That is really what, what, that's really kind of the base level of where crime begins. And I'm really, I mean, this is like a 40 year long theory. This guy's been working. I'm really kind of breaking it down, but that's what he's saying. He goes, we saw house burglaries drop during the COVID-19 crisis because everyone was home. You didn't have suitable targets. But commercial burglaries skyrocketed because people weren't at work. He goes, you have the capable offender, you had the thieves. The target changed. He goes, you still you didn't have people breaking into houses like they used to because that was no longer a suitable target. The guardian was there. It was you. So he goes, really, we, that's why we saw massive reductions in crimes in some areas and increases in other uh, domestic violence. We've seen an increased one. And there, we haven't really seen a lot of upticks yet, but they're believing we're going to see a huge uptick in, like, child abuse during this whole time. Kids who used to go to school and they'd be seen with a black eye. I told you this wasn't a great, fun segment. Kids who used to go to school and see a black eye or a chipped tooth or something like that, and there were guardians to say, hey, what's going on, man? Those are absent now. 
So we expect to see an unfortunately increase in child sexual abuse, uh, you know, child violence towards children, things like that. We've removed that guarding, which is normally society, which is teachers, peers, things like that. Kids may never leave the house. We have this intersection. And I, I was reading that article and it reminded me of this story I'd come across a couple months ago. I had seen it on Reddit. I had never, ever heard of this true crime story before. So I want to give a shout out to a Reddit user named Amatic13. Because again, I've been a big true crime fan for decades. And I've never heard of this story before. Evan, let's drive around the uh, Jason Jalopy. We're in New York. It's May 28th, 1982. It's Memorial Day weekend. As we're driving, we see a gang of youths. There's five young men. They're ages 18 to 22. They're called the Sutter Avenue Boys. They're a Brooklyn gang. And whatever... Sparks in their head to start this violent spree. It doesn't end quickly. Flatbush Avenue. These guys are driving down Flatbush Avenue. They see this parking garage called the Patio Garden Garage. They pull up. These five guys get out. Beat up an attendant. Beat up the parking attendant. Then just beat up six other people who are just standing around. They rob them. They end up getting $2,400 in cash. They get gold rings. And they steal a car. They steal a 1981 Cadillac. So they've upgraded their vehicle. They drive away. They see some cars parked on the road in this nice neighborhood. Suitable target. Capable offenders, obviously. They see this row of cars out here. And they go, well, we know what that means. There's a bunch of people in the house. Now, that would normally be a deterrent, right? These guys are armed with a rifle and a shotgun and a couple blackjacks, which are basically like... Lead in a, it's basically like a sap. It's like a, 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 even those are old terms. It's basically lead in a cloth. It's like a lead or like a a thick metal that you can use to clobber people. Super painful. It can kill you getting hit with a blackjack. Most criminals will stay away from mass groups like that. But they had already taken on seven people. They took on an attendant and six other people. They got a, a Cadillac and all this gold jewelry and they got this cash. Let's go for a bigger score. They roll up to this party. What happened was this family's son had just come back home from college. They're having a party. It's 12.20 a.m. There's 22 people in there. 22 people. The party's actually starting to wind down. The Sutter Avenue boys, one of the guys stays in the car. The other four go in at gunpoint. They take over the party. First time they're beating people up. This time we see an escalation already within an hour or two. The Sutter Avenue boys weren't a charitable organization before they were a street gang but we see a massive uptick in this activity in in just hours first time they beat a couple people up now they go in there they start beating people up but then they order people to take their clothes off they begin beating people up they begin making them strip and then the Sutter Avenue boys rape a woman there and then after they're done raping this woman they pee on the people it seems almost juvenile. I mean, I, under- I understand why they're doing it. It's to completely just dehumanize these people that they brutalized for a period of time. But they pee on them. They leave. But that's not even the worst that's going to happen that night. They drive out to the Seacrest Diner. And as they're driving by, they see the most suitable target yet. It has no windows. It's a restaurant. It's about 12.20 a.m., no windows. Brutalize six people. Brutalize 22 people. When they walk into the Seacrest with guns ready, there's more than 80 people in this restaurant. What happened 
at the Seacrest for about an hour and a half. The only people who really know for sure are the assailants and the people in there. Because people don't like to talk about it. This level of inhumanity in such recent times in America... I mean, we've had like cults do weird stuff. But I was shocked at this story. I mean, this happened in 1982. This happened in my lifetime. And it's been pretty much forgotten. I wouldn't necessarily say covered up. But this gang goes into this restaurant. These five guys walk in with guns, begin robbing people. They rape a waitress. And then they begin ordering people to rape each other. They had to shoot two people because two, two people completely resisted. They were like, we're not going to do this. So the Sutter Avenue boys just shot them. Continued beating people up and ordering people to rape each other. I mean, that's, that's inhumane. We don't know the full scope of what happened at the Seacrest Diner. Because when they left about an hour later, the cops were called. And when the cops got there... A bunch of the victims just left. They just went home. They didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to testify. They didn't want to think about it in any way, shape, or form. They just went home. There was always rumors about the scope of the brutality. Rumors about forced incest. and People didn't want to talk about it. These guys got arrested the next day. And you still had people who just never came forward. There's a quote from John Nolan. He was a senior detective on the robbery squad. He got called out to this. Because it was basically the equivalent of a mass shooting. You had a mass casualty event. Even though just two people were shot, they both survived. You couldn't... I can't even really imagine that happening outside. And it's horrible when it happens there too, but outside of like a war-torn country. Here's this quote. It's describing this woman he saw at the crime scene. Quote, she was wearing a light-colored blouse. In a dark skirt, her arms folded from shoulder to shoulder as if to protect her breasts. She reminded me of all the pictures I had seen of people from concentration camps who had lost all hope. Her face spoke volumes. There was sadness in her eyes. She had very dark circles around her eyes that contrasted with her white skin. She obviously had not slept. I thought how tragic it must have been for her and how tragic it still must be. Unquote. These guys were charged with 800 counts of attempted murder, rape, assault, robbery. Each of them got sentenced, they were all arrested the next day, each of them got sentenced to 3,000 years in jail, But which sounds great, right? Two of them are already free. So one of the guys was released in 2002, because this is the way American justice system works. You usually get a really big penalty, and then there's some changes in judges, and there's some changes in procedures and policies and things like that and people and, and time passes and someone goes oh well, i don't remember that i oh maybe read a headline sometime back in the day oh yeah you're paroled was released in 2002 we had another one released in 2010 you have those two and then two other of them they got life because they were connected to an earlier murder that wasn't related to that rampage they had murdered someone before this this wasn't the get along gang right they're already up to no good And then you have one more guy who is... um, Actually, I couldn't find any information on him. I couldn't tell whether he was released or not. Because there's really not a lot of follow-up. The big news story was back in 2002. 
when the first guy got released in 2002, it was a big news story because it was like the 30-year anniversary. It was that year. And people were like, what? You letting him go? You know, but then when they let the other one go in 2010, people were like, huh? That restaurant's still there. People are still leaving bad reviews on it. And I wanted to read those funny reviews to kind of... kind of. <laughs> it's such a dark story because, again, you... When I was reading about it, I thought this is like something you'd see in like a, a movie, like a like a really messed up movie. And I, I guess even though like I, I read a lot of true crime and definitely read a lot of conspiracy stuff, sometimes it like you, you sometimes stuff still shocks me. Like I've read some really like weird true crime stuff, but I'm like it's, it's just shocking. I, I'm shocking, one, that it happened. It's shocking, two, that it happened so recent, really, in my lifetime. And then memories just have faded. The people who this happened to are still around. I mean, this this wasn't a long time ago. There are people who were suffering from this that are still around. And then these guys are walking around free. And I don't know, it's so bizarre. I found the whole thing so bizarre. I don't have, like, a proper... Like, Dead Rabbit Radio ending for it. I actually thought about reading the reviews after the story, but then I thought, that's, no, that's that's not a good wrap-up. You gotta do the stories before, because then afterwards, you don't, you don't want to hear any jokes. You don't want to hear any jokes about moldy rice pudding. You just kind of want to leave the sea crest. Leave it all behind. But, that's it. That's, I'm just gonna shrug my shoulders. Bizarre, true crime story that happened within my lifetime. It's very likely it happened within your lifetime, too. And... That's it. That's it. I've just kind of, I've just kind of put my menu down and kind of sigh, <laughs> just kind of sigh, and I go, "Evan, pay the tab. Let's leave the Seacrest Diner." I just wanted to talk about that just completely dark story of a uh, true crime. We are leaving the Seacrest. Let's get a little more upbeat here. We're leaving behind the Seacrest. I hope you know all those people who suffered from that are finding peace now. Let's hop in the carpenter copter, Evan. We are headed out to Dagava, Estonia. <laughs> Helicopters leaving behind the sea crest. There's pus-faced waitresses chasing us. <laughs> one of us. One of us. Flying away. And I'm like, good thing we got away from them. Now to enjoy some delicious rice pudding. Dude, and then as I go to take a bite, I realize that's not rice pudding. It's pus. There's a little waitress face in it going, one of us. One of us. But I'm kind of hungry, so I take a bite anyways. We're leaving behind that whole story. We're headed out to Dagava, Estonia. It's August 1999. It's evening time. Helicopters flying low over the valley. There's a man named Anton Zilgalvis. He's a journalist. He's just going for a walk, right? He's walking along the coastline, skipping stones like splintered. If you get that reference, dude, you're my best friend. He's skipping stones. And dude, I remember I had that album. I play that album all the time, dude. Anton is skipping stones. He's, he's walking around. He sees a meadow. And in the meadow, he sees this egg-shaped object. This metallic object just sitting there. Little landing leggy things, you know, just like on the ground. He walks up to it. He knows exactly what it is, obviously. He goes, that is not a hut of one of my countrymen. That's obviously a UFO. So he starts going, hey, guys, guys. And the egg is just sitting there. It's big. It's not like just a chicken egg. It's not a tiny chicken egg. He's like, guys, guys. He's kind of waving his arms. Guys, 
Open up! I want to see you! Guys! He starts calling out for what he refers to as the brothers of intellect. Brothers of intellect! Brothers of intellect! Please, all these other people are stupid, but you and me, we're smart! Door opens up. And out come these three tall, what he describes as humanoid aliens with silvery coveralls. I'm thinking they're Nordics, which are generally the blonde-haired, blue-eyed aliens. That kind of fits their description more than... it. Generally, people go, oh, it was a reptilian or a gray. But generally, when they're referred to as just humanoids, it's usually what's called a Nordic alien. These three tall aliens come out. They're wearing silvery coveralls. They start walking out to him, and he's like, oh, yeah, dude. Yep, me and you, dude. We're both brothers of intellect. Oh, dude, yeah, but maybe I'm a little more intellectual than you. But I guess we'll find out. And as he's talking... They point a silver stick at him, and they shoot him, and he and he gets paralyzed. And they take him onto the ship. Now, at this point, he's probably thinking, probably, I, you know, I did offer to just come on the ship. Probably didn't have to be paralyzed, but, you know, when in Rome, when in Romulus 7. So they take him aboard the spaceship. Starts flying. I'm assuming at this point he can probably start moving again, but maybe not. Maybe it was a really bad paralysis. And he, they're flying. And he's probably like, oh, dude, this is so dope. Am I going to go to like to the moon? Am I going to end up on their alien planet? Maybe fall in love with some hot alien space babe. And then it goes, and it lands in the Caucasus Mountains. And he's like, oh, man. It lands, and the door opens up, and he is allowed to leave. So he's not paralyzed anymore, and he's walking around. And he says he, he thought it was the Caucasus Mountains because he kind of recognized the geography. He kind of reckon, It kind of looks similar to them. And he sees all these other, he doesn't necessarily say they're, they're the more egg-shaped vehicles. He just says he sees more what he refers to as objects. So they could be more of the egg-shaped things. It could be something else. But he sees a lot of these tall, silvery-clad aliens walking in and out of these objects. And he's kind of standing there. And then one of them walks up to him. He's like, hey, so are you the brother of intellect who's like going to be hanging out with me? Are you the tour guide? Or like, what's going on? Where's that hot space babe I was imagining? And at that point, the alien pulls out what's described as a corkscrew and begins to dig it into Anton's head. He then goes through what he calls extraterrestrial experimentation. We're not for sure exactly what that is. I mean, I guess the corkscrew being put through your head was probably test number one. Do humans feel pain? They're all... Yes, extreme pain when corkscrew enters his brain. We don't know the full scope of it, but what we do know is he is take after this alien experimentation. He leaves behind the caucus region. He's put back in this egg thing. He's dropped back off at Dagavau, Estonia. I imagine they drop him off with a little Band-Aid on his forehead. He's like, oh, I think I'm going to need more than a Band-Aid. And they're like, no. That's the only thing they say to him the whole time. The rest of the time, they're super silent. They're just, like, drilling him with stuff. It's like, oh, come on, man. I have a splitting headache. I'm pretty sure some of my brain's missing. They just walk away. He has a, has a little Band-Aid, a little SpongeBob Band-Aid. He's like, oh. Now, remember, he was, like, these, this thing was, like, sitting in the middle of nowhere. He was walking down the coast, skipping stones, and he saw it. Like, he was pretty much invisible to this thing, much like the Shredder is when he's sneaking up on the Ninja Turtles. He was the one who started yelling, Hey, guy, hey, alien, hey, spaceship, come over here. I want to talk to you guys. The reason why I want to 
point that out, not saying like this guy deserves what happens to him. I'm not saying that at all, but it's one of those things. I, when I was researching this story, I put everything in a file and this file was called careful what you wish for. It's not just because I'm a fan of tales from the crypt, but after he gets dropped off shortly after he gets dropped off, he's like, Oh man, I better go home and change my band. It's all it's like brain fluid is leaking out of it. Shortly after he's dropped off, he comes down with a mysterious illness. We don't have any details of what the illness actually is. This information I got from thinkaboutitdocs.com, and they got it from something called NLO number 44, was their November-December issue, 1999. So we don't have a lot of specifics, but he comes down with a mysterious illness. An unknown disease is the term actually used in the write-up. And within three months, he was dead. Now, it's possible that... You know, maybe he was allergic to skipping rocks. Maybe he has that horrible illness that if he skipped more than three rocks in a day, he's going to die in three months. It's possible. That's not possible, right? I made that up. But it's possible that he had a mysterious illness anyways, and that's what killed him. But, you know, it could be just be a coincidence that he was subjected to paralysis rays and corkscrews in the brain and alien experimentation and then dies three months later. could be a coincidence, but... What I think is interesting about the story, and that's horrible that the guy died. I'm not like, ha ha, that guy died. I'm not like that. But what I find interesting about the story is there's been a theory going on for a long time in UFOlogy. We've talked about it a couple times on this show. That aliens appear only to certain people. Like, UFOs are just something that's seen in the sky. But actual, like, contactees, aliens choose you. It's not like I'm walking through the forest and I see a deer. A deer is going to be seen by anyone walking through the forest. An alien only presents themselves or abducts people who meet specific factors. That's been a theory that's been bandied around for a long time. Aliens, there's always been that thing that they may only appear to certain people. And we've covered that a couple of times. What if this is why? See, the UFO wasn't there to meet. They're actually minding their own business, hanging out in their egg. Testing out new corkscrews on each other. And this guy, this guy who wasn't supposed to be abducted by aliens, starts making a big brouhaha outside. These aliens are looking at each other and they're like, can you scan that dude and find out if we're supposed to abduct him or something? They're like, no, he's a nobody. He keeps yelling about brothers of intellect. He's going to just draw a bunch of attention. They're like, I don't know. Should we just abduct, we just abduct this guy? I don't know. We're not supposed to, but I guess he keeps saying he's smart as we are. We'll show him a corkscrew to the brain. We'll show him how smart he is. What if being abducted by aliens, and you're not supposed to be abducted by aliens, or having a visitation with aliens, and you're not on the guest list, has horrible consequences like that? Maybe the reason why I don't see aliens, like I've seen ghosts and demons and stuff like that, cryptids and all sorts of stuff, I've never seen aliens. Maybe because... They don't, like, if I see them, something, something's gone wrong. Like, I'm not on the guest list. I don't get to go into the VIP room. I'm not on that list. Maybe you're not on that list either. We can all see a ghost. We can all see a cryptid. But you might have to have a special genetic makeup to actually go face-to-face with an alien. If that's the case, that may be another reason why aliens can't do full disclosure. It could be something as simple as what we already know to be true here on Earth. When two different cultures meet, 
that are separated by oceans, it's very, very likely, if not guaranteed, that there will be a disease communicated between the two cultures that will kill one, if not both. Aliens may not be able to come down and visit us in mass because they may kill us within three months. Corkscrew to the head or not, there could be something that they know about that when they visit us, if we do not have the right genetic makeup, it will kill us. So they scan everything as they're flying by. When they look for someone to abduct, when they look for someone to communicate with, he can survive if he meets with us. She can't. It would be a terrifying ending to a story of first contact if someday UFOs do appear over major cities, their leaders land, begin talking to our leaders, begin exchanging information, begin exchanging technology. And three months later, 90% of the world's population is dead. The remaining humans would ask the aliens, if you knew this was going to happen, why did you come down? If you knew that you carried a disease that would kill most humans, why did you appear? The aliens would just go, you've been asking for disclosure for so long. You've been looking up at the sky for so long and begging for us to reveal ourselves. You said you were our brothers of intellect. We tried to stay hidden, but you just kept looking for us. This is the future you chose. That's when the aliens get back on their ships and fly back out far away from human eyes, leaving us to rebuild a shattered world who got exactly what it wished for. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. <laughs>